Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we speak with Democratic Representative David Ortiz of Littleton about recent legislative efforts to protect the rights of people with disabilities. When you live with a disability yourself or you know someone that you love or respect with a disability, that starts becoming a part of the way that you think. We'll also learn more about methane leaks here in Colorado, how they impact our changing climate and what's being done to mitigate the damage. That and more just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. After months of waiting amid delays caused by the pandemic, Colorado finally has the local census population counts needed to draw congressional and state general assembly electoral districts. The massive delay has caused a lot of unexpected problems for the state's brand new independent redistricting commissions. KUNC's Adam Reyes has been covering these commissions and the 2020 census for us. He's with us now to discuss what comes next. Hey, Adam. Hey, thanks for having me. So what does this new set of local data actually tell us about the populations of our cities and towns and counties here in Colorado? Colorado's population has really changed over the last decade. Census senior demographer Mark Perry noted an interesting nationwide trend. On average, smaller counties tended to lose population and more populous counties tended to grow. That seems to hold true in much of our state. Here are some highlights from the data release. Weld and Broomfield counties have seen the highest rate of population growth. Greeley is the fourth fastest growing metro area in the nation. Denver is one of only 14 cities nationwide with a population growth of over 100,000 people since 2010. And Denver, Adams, Morgan, and Weld counties all have Hispanic slash Latino populations around or above 30%. In general, Colorado's diversity has increased with the nation with an approximately 45% non-white population. Logan, Kit Carson, and Bent counties lost over 5% of their population since 2010. But there's a lot of more detailed information that we won't be able to get access to from this release because it's in a format that requires time, specialized experience, and software to process. Maybe a simple question here, Adam, but why? Because the Bureau needed more time to double-check its counts due to the pandemic, which would have been fine if states didn't need the data to draw new districts months ago. Recognizing that, the Bureau put the data in this legacy format that states have to process themselves to get it out faster. A more publicly accessible version of these numbers will come out by the end of September. Like you said, this data has come months late. So now that they finally have it, will the redistricting commissions be able to make up for lost time? In some ways, they already have. Using population estimates to draw preliminary maps allowed them to hit the road to gather public comments in meetings across the state a bit sooner. Speaking of which, by the way, they're still doing those meetings, and the next will be in Greeley on Saturday. Still, much time was lost, and using estimates didn't make up for enough of it. There is no way that staff will be able to prepare a staff plan to have the commission approve it by September 1st. Um, it will be physically impossible. 
That's staff managing attorney Jeremiah Barry talking to congressional commissioners in mid-July. Since the commission's deadlines and rules are enshrined in the state constitution, commissioners voted to ask the state Supreme Court for help. The court approved the idea of extending the deadline to October. This will not only give staff much more time to integrate the new data into the maps, it may also allow commissioners to take those new maps that they create from this data on a second, much shorter public comment tour. Considering that the commission's preliminary maps already use up-to-date estimates. Why does this count data matter so much? The census count's role in district map making is enshrined not only in our state's constitution, but in many other states and federal law. It's a primary reason the count even exists. Will the count's local population numbers really change these maps much on its own? Oh, yes, very likely. Trying to count every individual in a community will yield different and, in theory, better results than surveying a portion and doing a bunch of complicated math to extrapolate it to the whole community. And staff constantly recognize this issue while presenting their preliminary maps for the first time earlier this summer. We cannot stand by the accuracy of this data, but we believe that this is a reasonable first effort. That's Commission Staff Director Jessica Shipley during the preliminary state legislative district map presentation earlier this summer. In the state house map, districts are so small in some areas that even the tiniest differences or errors can change district lines. So will this count be more accurate than the estimates? That's the hope and what the Bureau insists will be the case. However, there's a lot of doubt about the count's accuracy at the local and demographic level for several complex reasons, including the new way the Bureau scrambles data at the lowest levels of geography to ensure privacy. We just won't know for sure right away, and whether it is accurate or not, it's the only data the final district maps can use. That was KUNC's Adam Reyes breaking down the latest census data release. You can learn more about this data and the upcoming public comment meetings at our website, KUNC.org. Adam, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Many Department of Veterans Affairs clinics and hospitals are named for the places they are in. There are some exceptions and some controversies, like a medical center in Virginia named for Hunter Holmes McGuire, a supporter of slavery and doctor to Stonewall Jackson during the Civil War. In Colorado, an effort is underway to name a VA clinic after someone who stood against racism, helping to blaze a trail for others. KUNC's Michael DeOwena has more. I meet John-Claude Futrell at the Blair Caldwell African American Research Library in Denver's historic Five Points neighborhood. He said this would be a good place to talk about John Mosley, one of America's first black military pilots. My grandfather was born uh, just a few blocks away from here uh, back on uh, June 21st, 1921. He was born um, at home to uh, Dr. Justina Ford. Ford was the city's first licensed African American woman doctor. She wasn't allowed to practice in hospitals because of racial discrimination, so she turned her home into her clinic. She delivered uh, most of the uh, the children of color uh, in this neighborhood and the out, outerlying uh, Denver uh, areas as well because there just uh, there wasn't that kind of support anywhere else. John Mosley was 93 when he passed away in 2015. And the Colorado he grew up in was marked by racial segregation and exclusionism, from swimming pools to restaurants. And we keep going around here. Towards the back of the library, we come to a display case honoring Mosley. John W. Mosley. And wow. we've got uh, his flight jacket. There is a uh, bronze uh, a statue of a Tuskegee Airman that he was given. 
Mosley was one of about 1,000 Black Army Air Corps pilots and navigators who served during World War II in a segregated military. You'll see a photo of uh, my grandfather with other Tuskegee Airmen. A yearbook from Denver's Manual High School also shows him with a long list of achievements next to his name. National Honor Society, Student Council, uh, map salesman, budget committee, graduating committee, football, all city football, all city second team, wrestling, uh, uh, Christmas pageant 1939, highlight council, dance club. Mosley gave the valedictorian address at his commencement in 1939. And then, on a National Merit Scholarship, he went to what is now Colorado State University. Going up to CSU uh, and then being a, a walk-on football player at the same time. Back then, there were no black players on the team. And Mosley is believed to be the first in the modern era. And as the United States became mired in World War II, Mosley knew how he wanted to serve. Wanted to be a pilot, so he paid for his own pilot's lessons. Once, um, you know, Tuskegee was formed, he was very excited about that. In 1941, the Army set up an extremely arduous flight school in Alabama, and it was the only one giving black pilots a chance. By taking lessons, Mosley qualified as a civilian pilot and thought when he graduated CSU in 1941 and entered the Army, he'd go to Tuskegee. But he was told to report to an artillery unit in Oklahoma. So he had to contest that um, and really push and fight um, to be a Tuskegee Airman. He wrote letters to the White House and to members of Congress. And it wasn't just him. It was this entire community. It was, it was basically five points that came to his aid in writing letters. And so really rallying this entire community behind this idea that one of their sons could be a pilot. And it worked. After the war, Mosley returned to Denver and went to graduate school at Denver University, earning a degree in social work, and then for several years worked with boys and young men at the YMCA. But in 1951, he was called back to the military for the Korean War, joining the Air Force. He stayed on, serving into the Vietnam War, rising to the rank of lieutenant colonel before retiring in 1970. Even in its discrimination and its systemic racism, that there was an opportunity, there was a way in through the military because of resources, because of reach, because of access, that there was a world of opportunity there. Um, and he did his best to take advantage and make sure that other people also had access as well. He then became a special assistant within the Department of Health and Human Services, helping to shape national policies. His story just keeps going on. But I had to ask what kind of grandfather he was. He was the kind of man who gave us both love and tough love at the same time. You know, he would have us up in the morning every day at 5.30, regardless if it was a weekend or not, to make our beds, um, and then go downstairs because grandmother would be working on breakfast, and we'd sit down at the table, no TV in sight, and have conversations about the previous day and what the day would bring, and then it was work, and it didn't matter what kind of work it was. My grandfather, you know, he also, he taught us the, uh, the value of a dollar, he taught us the value of respect, both um, giving and gaining. It was those qualities, along with his accomplishments, that prompted Congressman Jason Crow, a former Army Ranger, to propose legislation naming an outpatient clinic at the VA Medical Center in Aurora after Mosley. Frankly, I was just blown away by the, so many aspects of his story and how compelling it was. 
three separate wars over a period of decades, uh, and then coming back to Colorado, where they continued to lead in, in civil rights and community leadership. It, it, it's just a story of, of leadership, of service, of people uh, way ahead of their time. The effort has the support of others in Mosley's family and the local NAACP and Colorado Veterans of Foreign Wars chapters. If they were alive, what would John and his wife, Edna Mosley, who was Aurora's first Black City Council member, think about this kind of attention? John Claude Futrell says his grandparents did not want to become the center of attention. They just wanted to work hard and do good. The naming of things after them, I, I, if they were still around today, I think they'd be pretty upset, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but then I, I am unapologetic about it, and I wouldn't care because I believe that the work that they did is work that not only should be celebrated but remembered. And that's how people remember things, right, with symbols. He added that the Tuskegee Airmen symbolized more than just the first black military pilots. They highlighted the benefits of integration, showed how it could be done, and blazed a path for those who would follow. Michael DeOanna, KUNC. Congressman Jason Crow told KUNC the next step in the naming process is to get required support for the effort from all the members of Colorado's House delegation. listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. At the end of June, Governor Jared Polis signed a new law that will require state and local agencies' websites to meet accessibility standards. The law, which is reported to be the first of its kind in the nation, marks a shift in the conversation about accessibility, moving it forward into the digital age. That bill, along with a slate of others focused on disability rights, passed out of the legislative session earlier this year. Polis recently signed laws enhancing access to ballots and prohibiting employers from paying Coloradans with disabilities sub-minimum wage. Democratic State Representative David Ortiz is one of the co-sponsors of several of those bills. Ortiz, who represents House District 38, which includes Littleton and Western Centennial, is an Army veteran aiming to increase accessibility not only in Colorado organizations and communities, but in the Capitol building itself. Since the start of his tenure, he has advocated to make the building more usable for people who, like him, use wheelchairs. He joins us now to discuss these new laws and the road ahead for accessibility and equitable opportunities. Representative Ortiz, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thanks for having me here. Tell us a bit about some of these bills that you co-sponsored in a broad sense. What kind of visible change might we see as a result? I think the biggest one was the Colorado Law for People with Disabilities. That was House Bill 211110. It's the first in the nation of its type where it mandates that state, government, and lower has to make their websites accessible. And I think we saw how critical that would be in a time of COVID when a lot of information and services were put out via the internet. So that's the one that will see the most changes here in the state of Colorado. The other one, make sure that you cannot be denied transplants or that your intellectual, developmental, or physical disability will not be considered as a factor in being a recipient for transplant unless it specifically has to do with you receiving the organ. There was a big report put down two years ago that stated that up to 85% of people that live with a disability aren't even considered for a transplant because of their disability. 85%. And the last one around making voting more accessible, it will allow individuals that live with 
a print disability for the most part to vote at home like you or I get to do. So those are the three that I sponsored or led the charge on. How will these bills be enforced? We've created some great partnerships within the governor's office and in the departments that are going to be enforcing these bills. So we'll be working closely with them. There is no other avenue than those of us that are either allies or that live with a disability to make sure that those that are in positions of power are enacting these bills. There's no other way around it. We're going to have to keep our eyes open and we're going to have to keep making sure that that it's enforced. When able-bodied people navigate the world, they often don't realize when something is not accessible for everyone. Are there some signs that people without disabilities should look out for? Able-bodied individuals can start by making sure they respect those spaces that are for us. So don't park in the accessible parking Oh, I just need to run in for five minutes. No, you have working legs. I know walking is hard. I say this as a chair user. I get it. Quit being lazy and don't take up that spot. Walk in. Even if it's far parking, at least you have the privilege of walking or the accessible stall in the bathroom. I get it. As a leg walker, before I got hurt, I looked at it as a comfortable place to use a restroom. For those of us that live with a disability, that's the only place we can use a restroom. So if there are other stalls open, do not use the accessible stalls. Respect the boundaries and the spaces that are for us. They're there for a reason. The next thing I would say if they want to go a step further is if you go to a place of business or a police station or a courthouse and there are stairs that are required that you use in order to get to a critical location, maybe talk to the building owner, maybe talk to the manager and say, hey, I don't live with a disability, but I know that someone in a wheelchair won't be able to get up these stairs. Have you guys thought about access? You yourself were not born with a physical disability, but use a wheelchair as a result of injuries that you sustained in an army helicopter crash in Afghanistan. I'm wondering, was disability rights advocacy always something that was important to you, or was this something you became passionate about after the injury? Yeah, this is my adopted tribe. I'm not going to act like I was super woke before I got hurt. And to be honest with you, I came with this injury with a lot of ableism because that's what society does to you. And especially if you're first generation Latino, ADA doesn't even exist in a lot of countries outside of the US. And culturally, people that live with a disability, other cultures view us as an extreme burden. This wasn't something that I considered before I got injured. I was in the armies, which which requires you to be very physically fit and very physically capable. So it just wasn't on my radar. And that probably contributed to my attitude when I first got injured. And I'll be honest, like every day for the first month, I wished I would have died in that crash. Our society is so ableist that I did not know that life could still be this good. And it took meeting others that live with a disability to be my mentor. It took getting to Craig Hospital, took adaptive sports programs. All of this together showed me what was possible and led me to be completely happy in my life and eventually feel driven enough to continue to serve again and run for office. What is it like to be one of the few members at the state house with a physical disability? I mean, does it feel like you have to represent an entire community? Partially, yes. And I love my Democratic caucus because one of the things that they kept saying by the end of the session was, you open my eyes. Like every time I think of passing a bill now, that's going to be a piece that I consider. Not that they weren't allies before, but this is the way that it goes. When you live with a disability yourself or you know someone that you love or respect with a disability, that starts becoming a part of the way that you think. It just does. It's human nature, right? We don't know what we don't know. And so, you know, at the beginning, at the very beginning, I did feel like a caucus of one. They put a ramp in to make my seat accessible and made some accessibility issues for the well. But I couldn't chair the committee of the whole, for example, because I wasn't willing to let people carry me upstairs to get to the dais. And they're working on that this summer. They're putting a lift in so that I will be able to chair the committee of the whole. And they're making the dais accessible. I'm working with Senator Danielson to make sure that the Colorado Senate, which is not currently accessible, becomes accessible. You know, there's a lot of great allies and partners, but this goes to show how much true representation matters. 
I want to wrap up by asking about the concept of universal design. That is not creating two spaces, you know, one for people with disabilities and one for people without, but spaces that are accessible for all. Why put in a big set of stairs and a small ramp when everyone could use a big ramp? Can you tell us some of your thoughts and what this would look like to you? I'm of the belief that universal design will make life better for everyone, whether you truly live with a disability or not. And here's what I mean by that. Let's take closed captions for a while. You know, I flew helicopters in the army. We flew often with doors off. I had a 50 cal, you know, machine gun right next to my my head, essentially. I don't hear so well. So I always, when I'm watching Netflix or when I'm watching anything like that, I always have closed caption on because I don't want to miss a detail. As your parents age, let's take your parents aging for a while and you would like to take them out to dinner or go out with them. If we have universal design in place, you never have to call ahead at the restaurant and see if they're going to be accessible. Universal design really will make the quality of life better for those that live with a disability and those that do not in every way. It was Colorado State Representative David Ortiz of Littleton. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. The UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released a report this week stating that immediate and extensive cuts in greenhouse gases are necessary to stabilize rising global temperatures. Some sources of these greenhouse gases, like vehicle exhaust, will be harder to mitigate. Others are easier and could provide more immediate relief if you can find them. In Colorado, multiple efforts are underway to locate and fix methane leaks. And as KUNC's Ashley Pacconi reports, that can make a big difference when it comes to fighting climate change. Colorado State University biology professor Jovan Fisher has spent the last decade hunting for methane in cities across the U.S. You have all these tubes that carry methane all the way from where it is at the point source to the homes and businesses where it's consumed. His team started by strapping a laser system to their lab's pickup truck and driving around Fort Collins. It's literally like blowing air into a flute, you know? It's sort of coming out all the way along that. The laser beam bounces between two mirrors. Some of that light is absorbed if it passes through methane molecules, which in turn can be measured. That determines methane concentration. Not only did they find high methane emissions, they also showed the leaking companies where to look. They just got out some wrenches and they just tightened down these fittings and it was fixed, you know? It was that easy. And I'm like, oh my God, I this science has direct impacts on the world. Methane accounts for about a quarter of global greenhouse gas emissions. But unlike burning fossil fuels, every pound of methane released into the atmosphere has 84 times the impact of a pound of carbon dioxide over 20 years. So while natural gas is seen as a greener option, Von Fischer says if too much leaks into the atmosphere, like more than 5%, we're better off just using coal. But there is one piece of good news. If you release a kilogram of CO2 in the atmosphere, it's going to be around for 100 years before it either dissolves into the ocean or gets taken up by by plant growth. But it has a relatively long lifetime. Methane gets into the atmosphere, about half of it coming from human causes, and then it reacts and is destroyed on average over 10 years. So cutting methane emissions would stop global warming quicker than reducing carbon dioxide. And others agree with that assertion. Atmospheric science is a complex problem that you need measurements of different gases over different scales. Uh, So combinations of different measurement tools are important. That's National Institute of Standards and Technology scientist Kevin Kossel. His team is also measuring methane with a laser. But this one, called a laser comb, works over larger distances, up to half a mile. It shines light at a bunch of evenly spaced, distinct colors like the teeth on a comb. 
the light hits a mirror and bounces back. But again, some of it gets blocked by the various gases in the air. You know exactly what colors of light are being absorbed by each molecule very, very, very precisely. Different gas molecules block different teeth on the comb. Their system, which was recently updated, can now detect methane, CO2, and other greenhouse gases. And it can locate leaks over a large area, like an entire city. You measure over usually different numbers of mirrors, and you can look at how much you measure from one path versus how much you measure from another path versus how much you measure from a third path. And you can use that to sort of pinpoint where the emissions might be coming from. These are just two examples of leak detection going on in the state. Andrew Baer, with the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, says they are also conducting aerial surveys over oil and gas operations to look for methane. And in the future, he says Colorado is looking into using satellites. All of this really reflects how important we think it is to detect methane leaks and generally reduce methane emissions in Colorado. CSU's Joe Von Fisher says that all of these efforts and technologies will need to work together to combat methane emissions. And I think what's interesting is that um, there's value working at all of these scales. You know, methane is a global problem, yet some of the, the sources cumulatively are causing methane enrichment on scales on the order of 20 yards. Colorado has set a goal to reduce statewide greenhouse gas emissions 50 percent by 2030. These technologies, and more like them, will be critical for reaching that. Current state efforts are only projected to decrease emissions by 18 percent in the next decade. Ashley Picconi, KUNC. That's our show for today. And a quick note before we sign off on this one, Colorado Edition is going to be taking a short break to focus on the show for a few weeks. We'll be hard at work seeking new inspiration and ideas to shape the stories we bring to you each day. We'll be back on August 30th with more great conversations about this incredible place we call home. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.